Before I start the show, I'd like to give a shout-out to my new patrons, Maddie and Kat. They are my new stone dogs, new being relative in Maddie's case, as he started supporting me over the summer during my hiatus when I wasn't dropping episodes in which to shout him out in. And in any case, thanks very much to both of you. I really appreciate your support. If it seems like a depressingly long time since my last episode was dropped, even taking into account the fact that I had to read and take notes for book five, that's because I also had to go back to work full-time. Hauling freight in a warehouse 50 hours a week seriously cuts into my podcasting schedule. On the bright side, if you're attracted to butch women with seriously muscular shoulders, I might now be your type. On another note, Podcast of the Dragon merch is coming. I have some designs done up and will be looking to have that set up soon, so stay tuned for that. And lastly, with my time being severely limited, I am no longer going to be doing the episode accompanying minisodes on Patreon. Instead, those at the Night Spear level and above will now have access to my rough drafts. So if you want to get an idea of what the episode might sound like in an incredibly unpolished state while I'm still talking out my ideas and have access to it as much as two to three weeks before the final draft, please consider becoming a patron. I'll be making a special channel in my Discord where people can post their thoughts in reaction to the rough draft, and if you help me work out slash polish an idea, I'll credit you in the final episode that goes up everywhere. And with that, let's talk about the fires of heaven. Stone won't fall until the podcast of the dragon comes to your device. Hey everybody, my name is Morgan. I have some free real estate at the beginning of my podcast intro. Welcome to the 37th episode of Podcast of the Dragon. It is great to be back and talking to you about the fires of heaven. When does an atypical, topical, mostly non-linear podcast begin its analysis at the beginning? When the start is so perfect, it begs for acknowledgement. Actually, now that I think about it, I've started most of these books at the beginning. I've just never been quite this excited about it. The Fires of Heaven was the first Wheel of Time book that I waited for. I only had to wait a few months, so it didn't feel like a big deal because the series was still very new to me and I was enjoying the cycle of continuously rereading the first four volumes. And I probably waited six months, maybe even eight, but while I was desperate to know where the story was going, the wait just wasn't a burden because the first four books were such a delight. It came out in October of 1993 when I was a junior, which is 11th grade for those of you not in the U.S. I was a poor high school student with a small monthly allowance. It wasn't even enough to pay for cigarettes in 1993 when a carton was only $18, so 
so I had to use my lunch money for cigarettes instead because I was a bad kid who smoked. My mom would not let me work during the school year. My summers were spent up for nights on end writing bad novels and manic frenzies, and what money I did have I blew on CDs and rock band t-shirts. And fantasy books, when they're first released in hardback, are expensive. But even as a kid, I appreciated delayed gratification, so I was honestly quite content to wait for Christmas. Though I made sure that my parents knew that if they got me nothing else for Christmas, they must get me the Fires of Heaven hardcover which is quite a change from two Christmases previous when the Eye of the World was one of the most disappointing gifts I ever got in my life. I was a package poker. My mom put gifts under the tree as she wrapped them, so in the week or two up to Christmas, there would be a gradual increase of presents. And that was awesome. It always amped up the holiday anticipation. And a few days before the Christmas of 93, I spotted what had to be that hardcover. A book doesn't look like anything but a book unless you stick it in a box or a gift bag. I wasn't allowed to move presents or shake them, and I wasn't supposed to touch them, but several times a day I would lay on my stomach on the carpet under the tree and I would run my finger over the top of the wrapping paper, and I could feel the embossed title of the DK Suite cover underneath. My hand would slide across the smooth texture of the wrapping paper, and underneath that I could feel the raised letters, and I just knew, I knew what was there, and I was so excited. I always got to open one present on Christmas Eve. My parents would steer me away from things that wouldn't entertain me, like clothes, and the most expensive or meaningful gifts were off-limits, but most stuff was free game. And usually what I chose was totally random. I'd take my time selecting something from the pile, but that year I snatched that book so fast and I ditched my parents to go read it late into the night because I was so eager to learn how the story continued. And it was such a great Christmas. And The Fires of Heaven isn't my favorite Wheel of Time book in the sense that I don't have a favorite, but if I had to pick a book I felt the most fond of, it might take that spot because it has such a special memory attached to it. And while I did the exact same thing with Lord of Chaos the following year, when I think back to Christmas Eve and reading The Wheel of Time, it's The Fires of Heaven cover that I recall. I see Rand and Matt and Avianda on the front in the city that I always thought of in my head as Roydian until it finally occurred to me when I was drafting the notes for this episode that it had to be Camelin and the climactic scene, presumably moments before Robin Zorch's Matt and Abby with lightning and Rand rage travels. Robin! The Fires of Heaven is a shining example of Robert Jordan writing a complex yet complete tale. The Wheel of Time as a whole is a complex and yet complete tale, and as it grows into the later volumes, because there's complexity on a macro level, there's minimal completion with individual books. Few of your story beats are getting finished off, and most plot lines leave you hanging. If RJ sets it up in the beginning of the narrative, there's no guarantee of resolution. In contrast, the early books provided a lot of satisfaction as far as wrap-up. One, two, and three are relatively complete tales. They're also simple tales. They have that very basic story structure of the chase and the artifact. Book four is a more complicated tale, but still relatively basic as far as having a main plot and then the three subplots that RJ sets up in his prologue, or in the case of that book, chapter one, and then has run kind of parallel to it. In book five, each subplot weighs on the others, they touch and intersect. Individual stories advance, but they are not their own entities like in Book 4. 
Rather than marching along together, the plots dance with each other. Each one of them needs the other in some manner, whether great or small. Yet despite its intricacies, the fires of heaven doesn't make you wait. For the most part, what it sets up, it pays off, at least in some manner. It plants the seeds and then reaps what it sows. As an individual work, it might be the best written book of the Wheel of Time. When it comes to the Wheel of Time and R.J.'s writing craft, the series is a story of stages. And The Shadow Rising, as I talked about in my discussion of its prologue and story structure, episode 27, is a bridge between the first trilogy and later books where he gets a chance to let the story breathe. And if The Shadow Rising is the bridge, The Fires of Heaven is the first tentative step on the other side. Tentative because he couldn't allow his prologue to just be what it was, which was 23,125 words long. He had to, because he wasn't comfortable with that, put 14,000 of those words into Chapter 1, even though the structure of Chapter 1 makes it most certainly part of the prologue, and he links the two thematically by their titles, The First Sparks Fall and Fanning the Sparks. By Lord Chaos, he says fuck it. He didn't want a 23,000-word prologue in the fires of heaven and felt compelled to spill it over into Chapter 1? Fuck it. Lord of Chaos's prologue is 30,000 words. In fact, a most impressive fuck it is that's the longest prologue until Crossroads of Twilight, which is 32,700 words, which Knife of Dreams leaves in the dust with 36,650 words. RJ decided to just surrender to the prologue's inevitable purpose in Book 6, which is to set up the story and not worry about it being too long. Or maybe I'm wrong, and the reason that he splits Book 5's prologue into a prologue in Chapter 1 is because just like the last book, Chapter 1 starts with Min, and he felt like she was too important to just put in a prologue. But if that's the case, by Lord of Chaos, Robert Jordan says, fuck it. The second and third prologue point of views in Lord of Chaos are Nynaeve and Elaine, because what RJ is giving us through their eyes is setup. They are helping lay the stage, and that is what makes something a Jordan prologue going forward. It's not who is giving you the story, it's what part of it are they giving you. What is what is happening through their eyes telling you? Is it an exploration of a main theme or beat, or is it the foundation of those themes and beats? The other thing that makes a Jordan prologue is a dedication to novel point of views, where he develops a supporting cast of minorly significant to relatively insignificant characters that don't make sense to explore in the main book. He can't build their narrative the same as he would for Rand or Matt or Egwene, so instead he just spends time with them in the prologue, and then will touch base with them during the narrative slash show us how what's going on with them is influencing or affecting the main story beats. And as we get further into the series and the story expands, sometimes, depending on the character, we won't get updated until the next prologue. And it is such an effective way to enrich his world and give us a vast array of supporting characters who do important work without bogging down the narrative to the point where it's not even viable. Chapter 1 of Book 5 is exactly the same as the prologue in structure and purpose. So for my analysis, Chapter 1 is simply Prologue Part 2. RJ is giving us POVs that lay out the board for this marvelous tale that is The Fires of Heaven. And the point of views that he picks to lay out the story are pretty interesting. The book starts after a very doom and gloom, fire, apocalypse, we're totally fucked prophecy in Elida's head. She's one of those characters where she's quite important, but not main story beat important, particularly not yet. 
It's useful to start with her, but there's no need to invest a ton of time, particularly because the really significant stuff that's going to go on with her characterization comes later. But we have to check in with her and get an idea of what she's up to because her actions affect far more significant characters. Beyond that, what is happening in the White Tower on a micro level as far as the tension in the Ajas and what Alviaren will begin doing inciting the terrible fractures that turn the tower into armed camps isn't serious yet. We see the genesis of it in this scene, but as of now, only the capital T tower shit that's happening is truly significant, which is the split between the Ajas and the coup. It is a great way to kick off the narrative to have things start in the tower, because the Aes Sedai can quickly update us with information. They are intelligent, knowledgeable, and connected people living in the center of the world. You know, the world turns around Tarvalin. We're brought into the middle of a scene where we're shown tension and character building. We're introduced to some tertiary characters that will have stories later on. We're shown the relationship dynamic between Elida and Alviaren, all in the midst of a conversation that isn't contrived. And in this conversation, we're told everything that we need to pay attention to because it's going to play out over the course of the book. It's a really brilliant way to start the story. Along with all of the external things relayed to us through Elida's observations in this scene, RJ is also giving us a sit-rep into Elida's mental state and her capacity for leadership, so we can get an idea of how much fuckery will abound going forward due to her shitty administration. We start in her office, where she is having a meeting with her advisory council. This is a group of sisters that it is never specifically stated the Aja has assigned to her after the coup to watch and guide her. But if you happen upon that fact in supplemental source material, further reading between the lines makes it clear that much as later on the Saladar Six and Nisau Dachin become Egwene's advisory council when the sitters are sort of like, hey Egwene, you should have an advisory council, and she says, Oh, yeah, that's a great idea, and then goes to the sisters she has extorted into swearing fealty to her and says, Talk to your Ajas and make sure you're the ones who are put on the advisory council so that the advisory council doesn't cramp my style. This is much the same thing, even down to how uninterested each Amarlin is in being advised. So we're in Elida's head, and she is feeling hard done by, which is basically her favorite hobby, along with just generally being an asshole. And it says... She barely listened to the women arrayed on stools before her. Their dresses were every color from white to the darkest red, in silk or wool as each woman's taste dictated, yet all but one wore their formal shawls, embroidered white flame of tarval and centered on their backs, colored fringe proclaiming their ajas as though this were a meeting of the Hall of the Tower. They discussed reports and rumors of events in the world, trying to sift fact from fancy, trying to decide the tower's course of action, but they seldom even glanced at the woman behind the table, the woman they had sworn to obey. Elida could not keep her full attention on them. They did not know what was really important, or rather they knew and feared to speak of it. So RJ is subtly setting up the tower's internal schism, the fractures among the loyalists. Pre-coup, wearing one shawl was fairly uncommon. It's a thing reserved for formal occasions. But all of the Ajos, except for the Reds and the Blues, split. And Sisters leaving the Tower reflects poorly on Ajos to the hardcorest of Loyalists, which are, of course, the Reds. So the Reds are looking sideways at the other Ajos and wearing their colors to be like, yeah, we're Reds, look at us being loyal and showing our allegiance to our Amarlin and to the Tower in general. 
because Reds could make an argument that they are the truest of the Aes Sedai who put Tower above all. Not a very convincing one, in my opinion, but they could make an argument. The other sisters in the Tower can't let that subtle slight stand, and so they wear their shawls to say, no, we too are loyal. Greens and greys and the rest of us can be just as loyal. You cannot look down on our Ajas for the sins of some of us who split the Tower and left and are shameful rebels. So non-Reds wearing their shawls is a quiet refusal to be shamed. They are loyalists too. They believe the Tower should be whole, and they will not have their Ajas maligned by the snooty Reds who are acting superior because all of them remained. So the inner Aja hostility has already started, even before Alviarin forces Elida to do things like severely punish certain sisters and give others fine gifts, so that it looks like those sisters threw the other ones under the bus. And... Honestly, Alviaran builds on Elida's behavior. Elida starts out shitting on sisters for reasons of her own, which RJ explores in this scene, and Alviaran runs with it and takes Elida's reasoned dickishness and turns it into capricious, tyrannical assholery designed to pry open these cracks in the tower. So, in this scene in the prologue in Elida's study, Alviaran is running the meeting and Elida is seething. After Elida thinks to herself that these sisters know what is important and are afraid to speak of it, it continues. There is apparently something happening in Shinar. That was Danelle, slight and often seemingly lost in a dream, the only brown sister present. Green and yellow also had only one sister apiece, and none of the three Ajas was pleased about that. So in response to Danelle, who we know is Masana, and... I don't know if RJ actually intended for Danelle to be Masana or if that was Brandon's choice. If she had to be an Aes Sedai in disguise, Danelle was a decent pick, since she's a brown sister who gets a reasonable amount of attention and has no other purpose throughout the story. She is the one who brings the mercenaries disguised as Masons in and specifically smirks at Swan when they invade her study to tell her she's been fired. And she gets the same amount of attention in this opening as some of the other sisters who end up having small personal arcs. So maybe it was RJ's actual intention that she was Masana, and that was part of his notes, and it just seemed random because Brandon didn't write the bridges necessary to make it clear that was what RJ had planned to write. Anyway, upon Danelle mentioning that there's fighting in the Borderlands, Alviaran is like, well, they picked a good time for it because the Blight's really quiet right now. And it says... Teslin's bony fingers shuffled papers on her lap, though she did not look at them. One of four red sisters there, more than any other Aja, she ran Elida a close second for severity, though no one had ever thought her beautiful. Better perhaps if it did not be so quiet, Teslin said, her Ilian her accent strong. I did receive a message this morning that the Marshal General of Saldea does have an army on the move, not toward the Blight, but in the opposite direction, south and east. He would no ever have done that if the Blight did not seem to be asleep. Then word of Mazrum Taim is seeping out. Alviaran could have been discussing the weather or the price of carpets instead of a potential disaster. Much effort had gone into capturing Taim, and as much into hiding his escape. No good to the Tower if the world learned they could not hold on to a false dragon once he was taken. And it seems that Queen Tenobia or Davram Bashir or both thinks we cannot be trusted to deal with him again. So then we get a bit of recap about male channeling and the Red Aja and how everybody's uncomfortable talking about it and nobody wants to talk about Mazram Taim. And then it says, Apparently Alviaran experienced no such reluctance. One corner of her mouth quirked momentarily in what might have been a smile or grimace. I will redouble our efforts to retake Taim. 
and I suggest that a sister be dispatched to Council Tenobia, someone used to overcoming the sort of stubborn resistance that young woman will put up. Others rush to help fill the silence. Jolene shifted her green fringe shawl on slender shoulders and smiled, though it seemed a bit forced. Yes, she needs an Aes Sedai at her shoulder, someone able to handle Bashir. He has excessive influence with Tenobia. He must move his army back where it can be used if the Blight wakes up. Too much bosom showed in the gap of her shawl, and her pale green silk was too snug, too clinging, and she smiled too much for a lightest liking, especially at men. Greens always did. The last thing we need now is another army on the march, Shamarin, the yellow sister, said quickly. A slightly plump woman, she had somehow never really managed the outward calm of Aes Sedai. There was often a strain of anxiety around her eyes, and more so of late. And then it goes on, and one of the other reds, Javindra, says that they should send someone to Shinar, and Alviarn is like, meh, our agents will keep us updated, and it says here, It was an open secret that every Aja except the white, devoted to logic and philosophy as it was, had watchers and listeners scattered through the nations to varying degrees, though the yellow network was believed to be a pitiful thing. And then Alviarn wraps up the discussion of this particular topic. As for Tenobia and Davram Bashir, Alviarn went on, are we agreed that they must be dealt with by sisters? She hardly waited for heads to nod. Good. It is done. Mamara will do nicely. She will take no nonsense from Tenobia while never letting her see the leash. And then she moves on to the next subject, which is to ask Avanalane, one of the greys who ends up being Black Aja, about white cloaks and general fuckery in Terrabon. So we are seeing this early on that Alviarn's casually making decisions... Sisters on the council are taking her orders without thought, and Elida is watching her power be diminished and dismissed. And she starts acting like an asshole to the sisters because she's determined to fix it. It says, Elida's hand tightened on her stole. Nothing touched her face, but her eyes smoldered. The matter of the Saldanian army was done. At least Mamaro was red. That was a surprise. But they had not even asked her opinion. It was done. And a little bit further it says, Less than two months since they had all knelt to swear fealty to her as the embodiment of the White Tower, and now the decision was made without so much as a glance in her direction. We never hear about this Aes Sedai Mamara again, beyond the fact that when we get Queen Athenielle's point of view in the prologue of Path of Daggers, she's thinking about how Elida blundered by sending Mamara to Tenobia, because Tenobia is not the kind of person that you can really control or bully, and I'm wondering if Alviarin did that on purpose, because why would Alviarin actually do anything that would be helpful in this situation? It seems like she decides to send the worst possible Aes Sedai specifically to cause problems with Tenobia and make her do exactly the opposite of what the Council wants her to do. There is great writing in this scene. The discussion of the fighting Shinerans kicks off this conversation, and it is an unimportant discussion. We never really get much closure about fighting in the Borderlands. We're told about it, and it's kind of assumed that they're fighting about whether or not Rand is the Dragon Reborn. We hear that later. But it's not a storyline that's ever really concluded, and it doesn't end up ever being important. But in answer to this insignificant declaration that there's fighting in the Borderlands, Teslin reasonably brings up Bashir marching south with his army, which brings up Taim. The denouement of the fires of heaven is set up right here in the fifth paragraph of the prologue. And in the final chapter, after Rand kills Robin, Bashir shows up in the throne room of the royal palace in Camelon. He's got two goblets and a jar of wine, and it says, Forgive my intrusion, he said, but there was no one to announce me. 
His clothes might be plain and even travel-worn, but he had what appeared to be an ivory rod capped with a golden wolf's head thrust behind his sword belt. I am Davram Bashir, Marshal General of Saldeia. I am here to speak with the Lord Dragon, who rumors in the city say is here in the royal palace. I assume that I address him? For an instant his eyes went to the glittering dragons twining red and gold around Rand's arms. I am Randall Thor, Lord Bashir, the dragon reborn. Anila and Samara had moved between Rand and the man, each with a hand on the hilt of her long-bladed knife poised to veil. I am surprised to find a Saldean lord in Camelon, much less wanting to speak to me. In truth, I rode to Camelon to speak to more Gase, but I was put off by Lord Gabriel's toadies. King Gabriel, I should say? Or does he still live? Bashir's tone said he doubted it and did not care one way or the other. He did not pause. Many in the city say more Gase is dead as well. They're both dead, Rand said bleakly. He sat down on the throne, his head resting against the moonstone lion of Andor. The throne had been sized for women. I killed Gabriel, but not before he killed Morghese. Bashir quirked an eyebrow. Should I hail King Rand of Andor, then? Rand leaned forward angrily. Andor has always had a queen, and it still does. Elaine was daughter heir. With her mother dead, she is queen. Maybe she has to be crowned first. I don't know the law, but she is queen as far as I am concerned. I am the dragon reborn. That is as much as I want and more. What is it you want of me, Lord Bashir? If his anger disturbed Bashir at all, the man gave no outward sign. Those tilted eyes watched Rand carefully, but not uneasily. The White Tower allowed Mazram Tayim to escape. The false dragon. He paused, then went on when Rand said nothing. Queen Tenobia did not want Saldeia troubled again, so I was sent to hunt him down once more and put an end to him. I followed him south for many weeks. You need not fear I brought a foreign army into Andor. Except for an escort of ten, the rest I left camped in Brame Wood, well north of any border Andor has claimed in two hundred years. But Taim is in Andor, I am sure of it. Rand leaned back again, hesitating. You cannot have him, Lord Bashir. May I ask why not, my Lord Dragon? If you wish to use Aiel to hunt him, I have no objection. My men will remain in Brame Wood until I return. This part of his plan he had not meant to reveal so soon. Delay could be costly, but he had intended to have a firm hold on the nations first. Yet it might as well begin now. I am announcing an amnesty. I can channel, Lord Bashir. Why should another man be hunted down and killed or gentled because he can do what I can? I will announce that any man who can touch the true source, any man who wants to learn, can come to me and have my protection. The last battle is coming, Lord Bashir. There may not be time for any of us to go mad before, and I would not waste one man for the risk anyway. When the Trollocs came out of the Blight in the Trolloc Wars, they marched with Dreadlords. We will face that again at Tarm and Gaiden. I don't know how many Aes Sedai will be at my side, but I won't turn away any man who channels if he will march with me. Mazram Taim is mine, Lord Bashir, not yours. I see. It was flatly said. You have taken Camelon. I hear that Tyr is yours, and Kyrie and soon will be if it is not already. Do you mean to conquer the world with your Aiel and your army of men channeling the One Power? If I must, Rand said it just as levelly. I'll welcome any ruler as an ally who welcomes me. But so far all I've seen is maneuvering for power or outright hostility. Lord Bashir, there's anarchy in Terabon and Eridomen, and not far from it in Kyrian. Amadesia is eyeing Altara. The Shanchen. You may have heard rumors of them in Saldeia. The worst are likely true. The Shanchen on the other side of the world eyeing us all. Men fighting their own petty battles with Tarm and Gaiden on the horizon. We need peace. 
Time before the Trollocs come, before the Dark One breaks free. Time to ready ourselves. If the only way I can find time and peace for the world is to impose it, I will. I don't want to, but I will. Ivor at the Carithan cycle, Bashir said. Putting the goblets under his arm for a moment, he broke the wax seal on the jar and filled them with wine. More importantly, Queen Tenobia has read the prophecies, too. I cannot speak for Candor or Arafel or Shinar. I believe they will come to you. Not a child in the borderlands, but knows the shadow waits in the blight to descend on us. But I cannot speak for them. Anila eyed the goblet he handed her suspiciously, but she climbed the stairs to hand it to Rand. In truth, Bashir continued, I cannot even speak for Saldea. Tenobia rules. I am only her general. But I think once I send a fast rider to her with a message, the return will be that Saldea marches with the dragon reborn. In the meanwhile, I offer you my services and those of 9,000 Saldean horse. So, right at the beginning, in the first few paragraphs of this book, Robert Jordan sets up the end. Throughout the story, Elida's study is returned to in Teleron Riyadh. The only real-world action that is taken under Elida's umbrella in this book is the drugging of Elaine and Nine, which RJ sets up with this nod to Yellow Aja agents and how their whole network is considered pitiful. And then a few chapters later, we get Rhonda Makura's emergency signal that Nynaeve recognizes because during her time in the tower, she happened to have had a conversation with Shimarin, who we are introduced to once again in this prologue, this mouse of a yellow sister who we first saw with the group barging into Swan's study in Book 4. In the process of getting drugged with Forkroot and almost kidnapped, Elaine and Nynaeve learn that the Armorlin has an APB out on Elaine, and they hear the message that sisters are welcome to return to the tower. All is forgiven. And they're like, what the fuck? So they go looking for clues in Teleron Riyadh, and they learn that Elida is Amarlin, and that the tower is broken. And from then on, they use Elida's study to get information. They rifle through her box of papers in the world of dreams. And that is RJ's device to update us and keep us aware of plot points that he's showing us here that will be relevant later. Later on in this book, as they're reading through her papers, we hear that Elida is getting more and more frantic regarding the whereabouts of Davram Bashir and Mazram Taim, and Nynaeve's thinking it would be really nice if we knew who these people were because we can't know why she's so frantic about this Bashir guy if we don't know who the hell he is. But the reader knows, and we definitely benefit from the information we're getting in this hub that is Elida's study. Elida is mentally shit-talking these women for being afraid to engage with the idea of Rand. They're all afraid to discuss what's important. They're all avoiding it. And Arte very skillfully talks around it in much the same way that the women in Elida's study are talking around it. It says, Two paintings hung where seated she could see them merely by lifting her head. The others avoided looking at them. Among all the Aes Sedai who came to Elida's study, only Alviaran ever so much as glanced at them. Is there any news of Elaine? Andaya asked diffidently. A thin, bird-like little woman, outwardly timid despite Aes Sedai features, the second Grey looked an unlikely mediator, but was in fact one of the best. There were still faint traces of Terabon in her voice. Or Galad? If Morghese discovers that we have lost her stepson, she may begin to ask more questions concerning the whereabouts of her daughter, yes? And if she learns we have lost the daughter heir, Andor may become as close to us as Amadicia. A few women shook their heads. There was no news. And Javindra said, A red sister is in place in the royal palace, newly raised so she can easily pass for other than Aes Sedai. She is well trained, though, quite strong and a good observer. Morghese is absorbed in putting forward her claim to the Kyrian throne. 
Several women shifted on their stools, and as if realizing she had stepped close to dangerous ground, Javindra hurried on, and her new lover, Lord Gabriel, seems to be keeping her occupied otherwise. Her thin mouth narrowed even further. She is completely besotted with the man. He keeps her concentrated on Kyrian, Alviaran said. The situation there is nearly as bad as in Terabon and Aradoman, with every house contending for the sun throne and famine everywhere. Morghese will re-establish order, but it will take time for her to have the throne secure. Until that is done, she will have little energy left to worry about other matters, even the daughter heir, and I set a clerk the task of sending occasional letters. The woman does a good imitation of Elaine's hand. Morghese will keep until we can secure proper control of her again. So here RJ sets up the Morghese and Ravan plotline, and the importance of the conflict in Kyrian, which will be our main fighting ground. And since the extra prize of this main fighting ground is Camelin and a dead Robin, and that won't happen without Morghese and her being quote-unquote dead, we need to be mindful of her importance. So Alviaran tries to wrap up the meeting, and Elida goes off. It says, Have I given you leave to go, daughters? Those were the first words Elida had spoken since telling them to be seated. They looked at her in surprise. Surprise? Some moved back toward the stools, but not with any haste, and not a word of apology. She had let this go on much too long. Since you are standing, you will remain so until I am done. A moment of confusion caught those half-seated, and she continued as they straightened again uncertainly. I have heard no mention of the search for that woman and her companions. No need to name that woman, Elida's predecessor. They knew who she meant, and Elida found it harder every day even to think the former Amarlin's name. All of her current problems. All could be laid at that woman's feet. It is difficult, Alviaran said evenly, since we have bolstered the rumors that she was executed. The woman had ice for blood. Elida met her eyes firmly until she added a belated mother. But it, too, was placid, even casual. Elida swung her gaze to the others, made her voice steel. Jolene, you have charge of that search and of the investigation of her escape. In both cases, I hear of nothing but difficulties. Perhaps a daily penance will help you increase your diligence, daughter. Write out what you think suitable and submit it to me. Should I find it less than suitable, I will triple it. Jolene's ever-present smile faded in satisfactory fashion. She opened her mouth, then closed it again under Elida's steady stare. Finally, she curtsied deeply. As you command, mother. The words were tight, the meekness forced, but it would do, for now. And what of trying to bring back those who fled? If anything, Elida's tone was harder... The return of the Aes Sedai who had run away when that woman was deposed meant the return of Blues to the tower. She was not sure she could ever trust any Blue, but then she was not sure she could ever bring herself to trust any who had fled instead of hailing her ascension, yet the tower must be whole again. Javindra was overseeing that task. Again, there are difficulties. Her features remained as severe as ever, but she licked her lips quickly at the storm that swept silently across Elida's face. Mother... Elida shook her head. I will not hear of difficulties, daughter. Tomorrow you will place before me a list of everything you have done, including all measures taken to see the world does not learn of any dissension in the tower. That was deadly important. There was a new Amarlin, but the world must see the tower as united and strong as ever. If you do not have enough time for the work I give you, perhaps you should give up your place as sitter for the red in the hall. I must consider it. That will not be necessary, mother, the hard-faced woman said hurriedly. You will have the report you require tomorrow. I am sure many will start returning soon. Elida was not so certain, however much she wanted it. The tower must be strong, it must. But her point was made. 
Troubled thoughtfulness marked every eye but Alviaran's. If Elida was ready to come down on one of her own former Aja, and even harder on a green who had been with her from the first day, perhaps they had made a mistake in treating her as a ceremonial effigy. Perhaps they had put her on the Amarlin's seat, but now she was the Amarlin. A few more examples in the coming days should drive it home. If necessary, she would have every woman here doing penance till they begged mercy. There are Terran soldiers in Kyrian, as well as Andoran, she went on, ignoring averted eyes. Terran soldiers sent by the man who took the Stone of Tear. And then she forces them to look at this picture that she has. She has the triptych of Bonwin to remind her of the price of failure, but then she has the canvas painting of Rand finding Baalzaman in the sky over Falma, and their absolute unwillingness to look at it. For a long time I was sort of like, Jesus, Jordan, you have all of these women who are so afraid of men who can channel and so put off by men channeling that it's like they can't even bear to look at it, and it just seems a bit much. But I don't know. They can't curate their news feeds, and so maybe their anxiety is believable, because they're talking about the literal end of the world, and I get not wanting to think about terrible fucking shit, and not having the option to not click on an article or whatever sucks, because people can choose to not doom scroll, and Elida is more or less forcing these women to, and it's shitty because they're Aes Sedai, and she's telling them cowards are of no use to the Tower, which is a fair criticism. If you can pass your Aes Sedai test, you should be able to deal with this. But I don't know that it's necessarily unbelievable to not want to think about shit like this. How many of us don't want to think about really depressing and terrifying things, and we just scroll past and don't click on the article? And Shimarin can't deal with it because she's not cut out to be Aes Sedai, and later on, when Elida demotes Shimarin, I'll delve into her character more, because there's backstory on her in the Wheel of Time companion that makes her whole situation much more interesting. But Shimarin can't handle it. She's crying and wringing her hands, and Elida thinks that something will have to be done about her. And it says, Randall Thor, a man who can channel. The words left Elida's mouth like a whip. They made her own stomach knot up till she feared she might vomit. Somehow she kept her face smooth and pressed on, pushing the words out, stones from a sling. A man fated to go mad and wreak horror with a power before he dies. But more than that, Aradomen and Terabon and everything between is a ruin of rebellion because of him. If the war and famine in Kyrian cannot be tied to him of a certainty, he surely precipitates a greater war there between Tyr and Andor, when the tower needs peace and gailed in some mad shiner and preaches of him to crowds too great for Aleandra's army to contain. The greatest danger the tower has ever faced, the greatest threat the world has ever faced, and you cannot make yourself speak of him? You cannot gaze at his image? And then she's like, where is he? We don't know where he is. Where is he? Fucking find him. We get more good stuff here. We are reminded that Rand sent soldiers into Kyrian, and that preps us for the conflict that will cause between him and Ravan, who is behind the Andoran soldiers that are also there. And in a few chapters, Ravan's going to send Darkhounds after Rand, and Landfear is going to pop up and be like, he sent them after you because your interests are conflicting. We're hearing Aleandra's name for the first time, and while tales of the Prophet and the problems he causes aren't new, we now see that they've grown so large they threaten the stability of a nation. There's chaos and fanatics in Gelden, so we're all prepped to deal with that fuckery through Nynaeve's eyes once she and Elaine get there with the circus. And RJ is subtly showing us which of these six minor named Aes Sedai will be important by who has more lines and more focus. 
Shamarin, Danelle, Jolene, and Teslin get multiple bits of dialogue and multiple mentions in Elida's inner narrative. RJ wants us to note them because they all have stories. Shamarin will go on to be broken down to accept it. She ends up fleeing the tower, and Brandon has her ending up in the rebel camp, and she shows Gowan and Gareth Bryn how to sneak into Tarvalon to rescue Egwene. Danelle ends up being Masana, which I'm assuming was RJ's intention. He obviously planned something for her, or he wouldn't have paid so much attention to her. Teslin and Jolene are both unshared and sent to Ebu Dar. Teslin becomes Damani when it falls to the Shanchen. Jolene avoids that with the help of her warders, and Matt helps them and Edesina escape. Javindra keeps her seat and goes on to be one of the sisters sent by Sutama Wrath, the exiled former sitter who Elida recalls along with Tovin Ghazal, and who the Reds elect to head their Aja when news of Galena Kasbin's death comes from Dumai's Wells. To Bondmen at the Black Tower, Javindra goes with Pavara and Tarn of Fear, and there's a great scene in Book 11 where Pavara and Javindra are having a conversation with Sutama Wrath, and Javindra seems to be unhappy about the whole thing, and she is, because she doesn't want a warder, and particularly not a male channeler, but she's like, Elida will never allow it, and Sutama says Elida doesn't know about it and isn't going to know about it because it's Aja business, and she better never fucking find out about it, do you understand me? And Javinda replies, yes, highest, and there's an expression on her face that Pavara describes in her inner narrative that shows Javindra is actually quite happy to be doing stuff behind Elida's back because fuck her. And she's not fuck Elida to the degree of Teslin, who goes to great lengths to undermine Elida, first manipulating Jolene into maintaining radio silence when they're in Ebu Dar by telling her, sometimes I think what Elida said about you is right. Oh, you want to know what she said? She said you're still a child. Some people never grow up. And then by drugging her with fork roots so she can't interfere with Nynaeve and Elaine's plans to leave Ebu Dar because Jolene thinks grabbing and detaining them might be the best way to get invited back to Tarvalon. Javendra isn't near that level of petty or bitter, but she is absolutely happy to keep secrets from Elida and doesn't give a shit that she won't like the fact that the Red Aja is sending sisters to the Black Tower and bonding warders, even though Elida would have had a stroke about it. And unfortunately, Javindra, along with Tarna and everyone the Red send but Pavara, gets turned to the shadow. R.I.P. The other two named sisters in the prologue scene, Andaya and Evanelaine, have only one line of dialogue each. Evanelaine is asked a question, what's going on with the White Cloaks and Interabon? And Andaya asks a question, hey, where's Elaine? And hey, where's Galad? The minimal attention RJ pays to them, compared to the other four tertiary Aes Sedai, shows that they're really unimportant characters, who we don't need to pay any attention to. They do recur, but more as placeholders than as real people with stories you need to know for the narrative. Avonalane is Black Aja, so she's one of the sitters who stood to depose Swan who makes it an illegal deposition because your vote doesn't count at the point that you're standing for the shadow, and Egwene ends up killing her in Tel Iran Riyadh when they have that awesome battle in the tower. As for Andaya, Arche uses her dialogue for a purpose. She mentions Galad, so he's in our thoughts. And lo and behold, he pops up a few chapters later. This book is the most significant book for his character until book 11, and Andaya's question preps us for him. 
but I also looked up her character for my own amusement, and her entry in the Wheel of Time companion is the reason that I know that this group of sisters is meant to be an advisory council to Elida. It says, Sarancha Colvin, head of the Greys, ordered Andaya to serve on Elida's advisory council when Elida was first raised to the Amarland seat, as both Sarancha and Andaya doubted the legality of Swan's removal and thought it best to keep an eye on Elida. Andaya thought the world was hanging by a thread and that it was useless to waste precious time with idle speculation, prattling about supposed logic or chattering over what every fool and novice knows. In 999 NE, she was surprisingly chosen as a sitter for the Grey in the Tower to replace Varelin Sinair. And what it means by surprisingly is that she is less than 100 years old. She was raised to the Shaw in 938. She is a young sitter in the Tower, just as there are young sitters in Saladar that will be part of the puzzle where Swan is like, I don't get why this is happening. And of course, the reason it happens is because the Aja heads want sitters that it will be easy to make step down when the Tower reunites. Verilyn left the Tower on Sarancha's orders because she wasn't called to the Hall to sit when Swan was deposed. And she, along with Tekima, Magla, Soroya, and Faisel, a brown, yellow, white, and green, all joined the Saladar Hall despite secretly being loyalists. Elida didn't call them to the hall because she couldn't count on their votes and didn't want to risk them giving arguments that might sway any tentative yes votes, so their Ajahed sent them to Saladar to control and defuse the situation and try to get the sisters to return. And when the Saladar Hall is elected, they, along with Ramanda, the three blue sitters, and Janya Frenda, a brown who is the only non-blue sitter to leave of her own choice upon Swan's deposition, are the only ones technically old enough to be sitters. But I digress. If the Fires of Heaven were a role-playing game, Elida's study is the save point. Our tower characters like Elaine and Nine, Egwene, and later on Swan, once she's trained in Teleron Riyadh, do the metaphorical equivalent of completing missions and returning for updates. I always pick Dragon Age as the game that I reference because it's my other major nerd thing and also because it borrowed liberally from the Wheel of Time. And Dragon Age, particularly in Dragon Age 2, you have a home that you can go to and swap out your party and store equipment. And there are often message updates where you learn bits of intelligence and things for your codex and stuff like that. So when I think of the tower's purpose in this book, it's like as our tower trained characters complete missions and they return for updates, RJ advances the mini-arcs of some of these minor Aes Sedai. We don't personally read what Jolene's penance is, Jordan leaves it to our imagination by having our characters react in shock. Nynaeve describes Egwene's eyebrows climbing to her hair upon reading it. Elaine learns just before they reach Saladar that Shamarin is to be arrested and reduced to accepted, and it is continually reinforced to us that Elida is upset because they can't find the Lord of Bashir. So they get information. Through trial and error, they get the equivalent of experience points, and they even get a new potion with Fork Root. So that's kind of the purpose that the White Tower and Elida's study in particular serves for the story in Book 5 an information hub to advance small story points that RJ can't waste time exploring anywhere else. It's a great way to utilize it while bringing our characters up to date about all of the fuckery going on and informing them about the coup and Saladar. Elida's POV ends. She tells the sisters to fuck off and spends the rest of it in a staring match with Alviaran before Pat and Fane get sent in. 
and we switch to his perspective. And when it comes to Pat and Fane, I'm not going to do much with it as far as my analysis because I don't think he's very important, at least not for this book. I had some people in my Discord wanting me to do some type of character study with him, and I will as we get further on because he is a character that RJ obviously planned to have some manner of significance, but as far as him being in the tower and having influence on Elida, he's just there for the dagger, and he sees Elida because that's what he would do. He's got Mordeth inside him, and Mordeth is going to be like, take me to your leader, and so he's going to talk his way into seeing her because that's what he does. But as far as Elida's characterization, his influence is not necessary to her arc in any way. There is nothing she does or that Jordan needs her to do that she would not do without Fane poisoning her. It's just that logically, if he goes to the tower, he's going to talk his way to Elida inevitably, and he has to go to the tower to get the dagger. But it doesn't serve this book in any particular way, and there are a lot of ways in which I feel like Pat and Fane does not serve the story. And not just because Brandon didn't wrap him up well. Fane is a character where I feel like Jordan developed him and then wasn't quite sure what to do with him. And he has potential in spotlighting the Shadow versus Shatter Logoth and how they interact and fight against each other. That leads directly to Rand cleansing Sidene. It all has potential, it just doesn't stick the landing, and so it's hard to know what to do with it, partly because I don't find him compelling. But I will, as I come across him and he's actually doing something that's pertinent to what's going on, explore that. But he doesn't do anything in the Fires of Heaven that's particularly relevant. Beyond when he goes and steals the dagger, RJ uses that scene to let us know, hey, Alviaran's Black Aja. Beyond that, there's nothing that Fane does here that's important to this tale, and this book could lose him and you would never notice, beyond the fact that he wouldn't have his dagger. But he could get it before, he could get it after, he does nothing useful here. And I think that RJ put him in the prologue because he had to do something with him. He wanted him to have the dagger, and he needed to move him somewhere because he had him last in the two rivers and ended it with him and his internal narrative thinking, I need to go to Tarval and there's stuff I need there. So Jordan was like, I'll put him in the prologue because there's nowhere else good to put him, and I'll revisit him somewhere in the text. He'll get his dagger and then he'll go somewhere else, but, you know, I gotta do something with him. And so that is why he's in the prologue. That leads us to Robin's point of view. His is the last POV of Prologue Part 1, and it's set up in Elida's with the questions that Andaya asks. Any news of Elaine or Galad? We don't want Morgase mad at us, where Javindra replies, oh, she's wrapped up with Gabriel, he's keeping her focused on Kyrien. And a first-time reader doesn't yet know for certain that Gabriel is Robin. They can definitely infer it, Book three is a study of a new powerful person that no one has ever heard of being in charge of a country, and look, it's a Forsaken. But you're never specifically told until Lanfear tells Rand in chapter six of this book. And one of the reasons that Rand is so murderously angry with Robin when news of Morgase's death comes to Kyrian is because he's angry with himself. He knew his girlfriend's mother was in the hands of a Forsaken and did nothing because he couldn't afford to. And this Robin POV is a lead-in to a meeting with various Chosen. And it could probably have been shown through another's eyes. You know, he could have shown it through Samael's eyes or Grendel's or even Lanfear's, except that all of the Forsaken are self-absorbed. And this is the beginning of a two-pronged setup to the climax of the book, because Robin is the final boss battle, and he's going to be killed. So it makes sense to show it through his eyes. He's going to give us the important details that we need to hold on to. 
We've had a couple of encounters with him before now, mostly from Matt's perspective. In book three, Matt overhears him tell Komar to go kill the girls, and shortly after meets him in person, where he gives Matt ten gold marks for bringing Elaine's letter to Morghese. But this is our chance to really know him. He gets his time to show us how deserving he is of a large shaft of balefire. So, we enter on Ravan, who is using compulsion on the newly raised sister that Javindra was telling Elida's counsel about. Manipulating women with compulsion is kind of his thing, because he's gross. And I'll delve more into that when I actually do an episode on the Forsaken. But it says, Compulsion had presented no difficulties with this woman. A scowl twisted his face. It did, with some. A few, a very few, had a strength of self so firm that their minds searched, even if unaware, for crevices through which to slide away. It was his bad luck that he still had some small need for one such. She could be handled, but she kept trying to find escape without knowing she was trapped. Eventually that one would no longer be needed, of course. He would have to decide whether to send her on her way or be rid of her more permanently. Dangers lay either way. Nothing that could threaten him, of course, but he was a careful man, meticulous, Small dangers had a way of growing, if ignored, and he always chose his risks with a measure of prudence. To kill her, or keep her? And maybe Robin just isn't very talented at compulsion, and that's why Morghese keeps being able to try to find a way out. Because she would never have been able to do that with Grendel compelling her. Or maybe it's that Robin needs her to be able to go through the motions of being herself, so he doesn't zap her mind in the way that Grendel does with her pets, and that's why she's able to think her way out. I'm guessing it's a little a column A and a little a column B, but regardless, Robin has limitations with compulsion. Here, in this point of view, we have the foundation for Morghese to work her way out of the compulsion that Robin has on her and escape, and that is going to cause the rumor of her death. And once Rand gets that rumor, he is super fucking pissed, and he proposes the raid from Kyrian to Camelon, and skims there with Matt and Avienda and a whole bunch of Aiel. After Moraine tells him, hey, you should come down and see this thing at the docks with me, and they have the giant fuck with Lanfear, and she and Lanfear go through the doorway. So, Robin's point of view sets the stage for forsaken fuckery, because Lanfear appears and tells him, hey, some others are coming, and Grendel and Samael show up, and the four of them hatch a plan. And all of those machinations that are explored in this prologue point of view, I'm going to look through in a Forsaken-centric episode that I originally anticipated would be my first episode of Book 5, and teach me to make predictions about analyzing a book. But as far as laying a foundation, in this POV of Robin's, RJ is setting up the path to the end of the book before he moves us into the next point of view. So, the second part of the prologue, prologue part two, aka chapter one, starts from Min's point of view. There are four potential characters Jordan could pick from in following these refugees from Elida who have fled Tarvalon and now are trying to find their way in the world. But it is too early to hear from Loghain. It's no good to hear from Loghain until he's been healed and has some hope for the future. And unfortunately, we never get POVs from Liana. So realistically, Swan or Min are the only two to pick from, and when it comes to setting the tone, Min is the better choice. Min is a character prone to frustration, and one who complains about where fate has landed her. 
And that's what we want here. We want someone who feels overwhelmed and will mostly admit to it, who will acknowledge deep down a sense of helplessness and lack of power in a situation. And while we've already had some mention of the heat, Robin notes his servant sweating, now we're getting the thoughts of someone suffering from it. We're not hearing in this book that the heat is unnatural, at least not until towards the end where people are starting to think, damn, this heat does not seem right, it really should be cooling off. We're getting into autumn. I'm guessing that towards the end of this book, it's supposed to be roughly the beginning of October as far as how the months would translate, and they're thinking, man, it really shouldn't still be 95 degree days, what the fuck? But they're not scared about it yet. They're not telling themselves this is actually real fucking bad. But it says here, Twisting to lean back against the wall, she wiped sweat from her brow, though it only sprang out again. The inside of the shed was stifling, but her two companions did not appear to notice. Swan lay stretched out on her back in a dark woolen riding dress, much like Min's, staring at the shed roof, idly tapping her chin with a straw. Coppery-skinned Liana, willowy and as tall as most men, sat cross-legged in her pale shift, working on her dress with needle and thread. They had been allowed to keep their saddlebags after they were searched for swords or axes or anything else that might help them escape. What's the penalty for burning down a barn in Andor? Min asked. If we are lucky, Swan replied without moving, a strapping in the village square. Not so lucky and it will be a flogging. Light, Min breathed. How can you call that luck? Swan rolled onto her side and propped herself up on an elbow. She was a sturdy woman, short of beautiful, though beyond handsome, and looked no more than a few years older than Min, but those sharp blue eyes had a commanding presence that did not belong on a young woman awaiting trial in a backcountry shed. Sometimes Swan was as bad as Loghain about forgetting herself, maybe worse. When a strapping is done, she said in a brook-no-nonsense, do-not-be-foolish tone, it is done and we can be on our way. It wastes less of our time than any other penalty I can think of, considerably less than hanging, say, though I don't think it will come to that from what I remember of Andron Law. Wheezing laughter shook men for a moment. It was that or cry. Time? The way we are going, we've nothing but time. I swear we have been through every village between here and Tarvalon and found nothing. Not a glimmer, not a whisper. I don't think there is any gathering, and we are on foot now. From what I overheard, Loghain took the horses with him. A foot and locked in a shed awaiting the light knows what. Watch names, Swan whispered sharply, shooting a meaning glance at the rough door with the guard on the other side. A flapping tongue can put you in the net instead of the fish. Min grimaced, partly because she was growing tired of Swan's Terran fisherman's sayings, and partly because the other woman was right. So far they had outrun awkward news. Deadly was a better word than awkward, but some news had a way of leaping a hundred miles in a day. Swan had been traveling as Mara, Liana as Amena, and Loghain had taken the name Dolan after Swan convinced him Guar was a fool's choice. Min still did not think anyone would recognize her own name, but Swan insisted on calling her Serenla. Even Loghain did not know their true names. The real trouble was that Swan was not going to give up. Weeks of utter failure, and now this, yet any mention of heading off for Tyr, which was sensible, set off a tempest that quailed even Loghain. The longer they had searched without finding what Swan sought, the more temper she had developed. Not that she couldn't crack rocks with it before. Min was wise enough to keep that particular thought to herself. So this passage highlights danger and gives a sense of slipping. The world has grown to feel very out of control. It didn't take long for it to spin into chaotic fuckery. By the middle of book two, things are starting to fall apart, starting in Kyrian and going from there. But now there are people we genuinely care about who are slipping and have no safety. And it's not like Min hasn't been in terrible situations before. 
Certainly the end of Book 2 and being in Falma with the Shanchen was a terrible situation, but this seems worse for some reason, maybe just because everything else is also so bad. It's not just that she's in a dangerous situation, but the weather's terrible, and she doesn't know where to go. She doesn't have a goal beyond feeling that it would be better just to go to Tyr. Which it wouldn't be, because when they got to Tyr, Rand wouldn't be there, and they wouldn't let her into the stone just because she says, I know Rand Althor. They'd be like, uh-huh. Or possibly even kill her for it, who knows? And that makes Min the best choice for narrator here, because she shows us Swan's journey while lacking her confidence. There is no assurance in this plan. She only half-believes Swan even has a plan. Her POV gives us this wavering faith and total lack of direction. And that makes the notion of Saladar or a tower in exile or anything, even just this gathering, it's gathering, it's like a gathering. So even though you get this word gathering, it's so vague. My first read-through, I didn't even know what she was looking for. I was like, why is she wandering around? Min mentions a gathering, but I didn't even pick it up because it's all so ambiguous. Min's lack of faith in Swan and Swan's mission and in the idea that Swan knows what she's doing is so palpable that I didn't grasp that Swan actually had a specific thing that she was looking for. It was overwhelmed by the sense of being lost and directionless. And partly that's because Min half thinks there actually isn't anything. And that is a great way to tell this part of the story because there is a massive reveal at the end. She has lost all faith and all of a sudden they're riding through these woods and then boom, there are hundreds of Aes Sedai in this rural Altaran ghost town. But RJ sets the scene where Min is losing confidence fast in Swan and then has it wrecked even further when they get taken to this trial and Bryn, rather than following the plaintiff farm wife's suggestion to whip them hussies good and ride them to Jornhill on a rail, chooses to be kind and merciful, and so instead of a quick strapping and a hasty departure, Bryn's like, swear an oath of service and I'll pay your fine, and you can live in my manor and actually have a good job and food and a roof over your head, and once we're square, you can stay if you want. Bryn is a good dude and has the means to help poor refugees and the desire to, particularly young women who were stuck with a sketchy dude for protection, reduced to sleeping in these assholes' barn. And so because he wants to be nice, he puts them in a situation where Swan's sort of like, okay, I'm going to pick the strongest oath that I can swear so he won't watch me so I can GTFO ASAP. And so that's what she does. And Liana follows suit. And Min does as well, utterly horrified. And then as they're being driven to Bryn's manor by his man Joni, just before Loghain rescues them, Min unloads on Swan. When you decide to give up, you don't do it small. You just surrender like a lamb at slaughter. Why did you choose that oath? Light, why? Because, Swan replied, it was the one oath I could be sure would keep him from setting people to watch us night and day, manor house or not. Lying half-stretched out on the rough planks of the cart, she made it sound the most obvious thing in the world, and Liana appeared to agree with her. You mean to break it, Min said after a moment. It came out as a shocked whisper, but even so she glanced worriedly at the canvas curtains that hid Joni. She did not think he could have heard. I mean to do what I must, Swan said firmly, but just as softly. In two or three days, when I can be sure they really aren't watching us especially, we will leave. I fear we must take horses, since ours are gone. Bryn must have good stables. I will regret that. And Liana just sat there like a cat with cream on her whiskers. She must have realized from the first that was why she had not hesitated in swearing. You will regret stealing horses, Min said hoarsely. Ha ha. You plan to break an oath anyone but a dark friend would keep, and you regret stealing horses? 
I can't believe either of you. I don't know either of you. Do you really mean to stay in scrub pots? Liana asked, her voice just as low as theirs, when Rand is out there with your heart in his pocket. Min glowered silently. She wished they had never learned she was in love with Rand Althor. Sometimes she wished she had never learned it. And so Min gets called out there because the fact of the matter is that, no, she absolutely has no intention of staying to scrub pots. She's going to go to Rand no matter what. So she's tortured about it, but she's going to do whatever it takes. And so she's angry at them, but it's kind of like, it is what it is. Jordan does a lot with this scene in Chorus Springs, but I think the most understated and important thing that gets done with this point of view overall is character development for Liana, who's been a pretty two-dimensional character up until now. A great one, likable, but before now she's basically just brisk and efficient, and someone whose intense loyalty to Swan got her fucked over. But RJ takes advantage of Liana's new circumstances to let her remake herself, while they're still in the shed before they even know who the local lord is, who is going to be their judge, she's doing needlework on her dress because she's trying to make it tighter. She's basically trying to show off her tits and put on some makeup in the hopes of getting them a reduced sentence. And when Swan is sort of like, what the fuck, she says, I think perhaps I've always felt I was masquerading as someone else, building up a mask until it became second nature. There was serious work to be done, more serious than merchanting, and by the time I realized there was another way I could have gone even so, I had the mask on too firmly to take off. Well, that is done with now, and the mask is coming off. So, she wants to put to use all of the stuff that her merchant mother and aunts taught her before she learned, because she was born with the spark, that she was going to have to go to Tarvalin. And so she says that she considered beginning her flirtation with Loghain, but she thinks that because she's out of practice... He might think she was promising more than she actually meant to offer. And Swan asks, so what if this lord is somebody like Loghain? And RJ shows a bit here where someone is genuinely considering if it comes to that trading sex work to pay a fine, which I guess is kind of like sex barter. And while Gareth Bryn would never be comfortable with such a transaction because of the inevitable power imbalance, there's no judgment of Liana for considering it, and the exploration of the idea is one where she comes across as empowered rather than helpless, which is kind of cool. I appreciate it. Anyway, they get rescued by Loghain, and so they don't have to bide their time waiting for a chance to escape. He hits Joni with a rock from his sling and has their horses. He's just been waiting to get them because... Loghain's got his problems, but he's actually a pretty decent dude in his own way. He's just got mental health issues, and he had a lot of bad shit happen, and he expects something from Swan as far as his vengeance. But I also just don't think he would have ditched them, because to quote my favorite true crime podcast, he's an asshole, but he's not a scumbag. And so they ride off into the sunset, and our next point of view is Gareth Bryn. We learn that Bryn was sent off to Core Springs in Book 3. Matt and Tom go to Camelin to deliver Elaine's letter, and Basil Gill dishes the dirt about Gabriel. Gill tells them that Bryn didn't like Gabriel's methods because he can be a really harsh dude, and when he protested the changes in policy championed by this new advisor, Morgase was like, okay, well, get packing and fuck off. And I don't know if Robin wanted her to execute Gareth Bryn, or if he didn't give a shit one way or another. He does say in his POV that he's kind of a measured man in the choices that he makes, and he doesn't always kill people because it's not necessarily the right thing to do. Or maybe he wanted her to kill him, but Morgase resisted it because she actually loved Gareth Bryn and had a long-established relationship with him, so she just exiled him and was basically like, 
Get the fuck out. Your long service is the reason you're keeping your head. And it doesn't matter either way. Morgase packed him off, and now we see where. To this very rural village where he's just kind of wasting away. So we've seen where through Min's eyes, and now we get a chance to see who. We were introduced to Bryn through Rand's perspective, and we've seen how other people think about him and their impressions of him as a general. And now we see him as a person. It says, Tucking his leather gauntlets behind his sword belt, Gareth Bryn picked up the curl-brimmed velvet hat from his writing table. The hat was the latest fashion from Camelin. Carolyn had seen to that. He had no care for fashion, but she thought he should dress suitably for his position, and it was the silks and velvets she laid out for him in the morning. As he set the high-crowned hat on his head, he caught sight of his shadowy reflection in one of the study windows, fitting that it was so wavery and thin. Squint as much as he would, his gray hat and gray silk coat embroidered with silver scrolls down the sleeves and collar looked nothing like the helmet and armor he was used to. That was over and done, and this... This was something to fill empty hours, that was all. Are you certain you want to do this, Lord Gareth? He turned from the window to where Carolyn stood beside her own writing table, across the room from his. Hers was piled with the estate account books. She had run his estates all the years he had been gone, and without doubt she still made a better job of it than he did. If you had set them to work for Admir Nem as the law required, she went on, this would be none of your affair at all. But I did not, he told her, and would not if I had it to do again. You know as well as I do, Nem and his male kin would be trying to corner those girls day and night, and Mygan and the rest of the women would make their lives the pit of doom. That is, if all three girls didn't accidentally fall down a well and drown. Bryn is a straightforward person, so it's not like getting inside his head is surprising. You're getting who you expect in many ways. But the private side of Bryn that only his internal narrative can show us reveals a closed-off and deeply wounded man, someone who is very sensitive to betrayal. And you hear that his estate manager has been trying to find him a woman who will take his mind off his troubles because he's fucking heartbroken. Morgase, out of the blue, told him to fuck off out of her life, and she was so different from who he knew her to be that he's just stunned and bewildered, like a loyal dog that doesn't understand why you kicked him. But because he's not a dog, he's also incredibly angry and bitter. So Carolyn is trying to make his homecoming welcome, and she keeps introducing women who are DTF hoping to distract him, and he's not really interested. So in giving a sort of tacit approval of Bryn going after the women, Carolyn tells him that she can definitely use them around the house, and he's like, uh, no. They broke oath, they're going to labor in the fields under guard, and she counters that Liana at least would be wasted out there. She's so graceful that she'd do really well serving at table, hint, hint. And he's not really interested. It says, Why did he find himself thinking of a pair of blue eyes, challenging him as though wishing she had a sword, afraid and refusing to yield to fear? Mara Tamanas. He had been sure she was one to keep her word, even without oaths. I will bring her back, he muttered to himself. I will know why she broke oath. As you say, my lord, Carolyn said, I thought she might do for your bedchamber, maid. Sailor is getting a bit old to be running up and down the stairs to fetch for you at night. Bryn blinked at her. What? Oh, the Domani girl. He shook his head at Carolyn's foolishness. But was he being any less foolish? He was the lord here. He should remain here to take care of his people. Yet Carolyn had taken better care than he knew how all the years he was gone. He knew camps and soldiers and campaigns and maybe a bit of how to maneuver and court intrigues. She was right. He should take off his sword and this fool hat and have Carolyn write out their descriptions and... Instead, he said... Keep a close eye on Admir Nem and his kin. They'll try to cheat you as much as they can. 
As you say, my lord. The words were perfectly respectful. The tone told him to go teach his grandfather to shear sheep. Chuckling to himself, he went outside. The manor house was really little more than a tremendously overgrown farmhouse. Two rambling stories of brick and stone under a slate roof, added to again and again by generations of Bryns. House Bryn had owned this land, or it had owned them, since Andor was wrought from the wreckage of Arthur Hawkwing's empire a thousand years before, and for all of that time it had sent its sons off to fight Andor's wars. He would fight no more wars, but it was too late for House Bryn. There had been too many wars, too many battles. He was the last of the blood. No wife, no son, no daughter. The line ended with him. All things had to end. The wheel of time turned. Twenty men waited beside saddled horses on the stone-paved yard in front of the manor house. Men even grayer than he, mostly, if they had hair. Experienced soldiers all, former squadmen, squadron leaders and bannermen who had served with him at one time or another in his career. Joni Chagrin, who had been senior bannerman of the guards, was right at the front with a bandage around his temples, though Bryn knew for a fact his daughters had set their children to keep him in his bed. He was one of the few who had any family here or anywhere else. Most had chosen to come serve Gareth Bryn again rather than drink away their pensions over reminiscences no one but another old soldier wanted to hear. So, something about Swan touched him. And of all of the romances that R.J. writes in the story, and most of them are just terribly, terribly written, I like theirs best, or one of the best. It's not really any better written than any of the others, but I feel like it's got decent potential. I find, at least on Bryn's end, like the feeling is very genuine. You've got somebody who is wounded and sensitive to betrayal, and something about this woman who was frightened and refusing to yield to fear appealed to him. Because Gareth Bryn doesn't want these soft-sensitive women that Carolyn keeps sending his way, all looking to be nurturing and distract him from his troubles. He wants someone who's going to rip his head off if he pisses her off. He's used to strong women who don't fuck around. You know, he was more Gase's lover for years. He wants someone who's going to cut his face if he steps wrong. And so Swan Sanjay is exactly the type of woman that he would go for. And he is attracted to vulnerability, but most especially when coupled with courage. And seeing someone who is incredibly vulnerable be like, fuck with me and find out, that is seriously bonerific for him. And the sincerity and honesty that he saw in her, and also just devotion to duty, he was positive that she would keep her word. And because he doesn't know the overall duty and understand that she's got much more important promises to keep than paying Gareth Bryn back the money he fronted her for a fine with her indentured servitude, he's butthurt and confused that she breaks oath. And because he's bored, he and these men who served him are wasting their talents here and they're just fucking dying of boredom. He's kind of like, what the fuck else am I supposed to do? Bryn's POV also shows the movement of news and information. We heard from Elida that it had been two months since they raised her Amaral, and so there's been time for all of this earth-shattering news to travel. I did a lot of hardcore time calculation in my early episodes for The Shadow Rising, and I determined that Swan informs the Hall that a man has drawn Kalandor approximately 25 days after the fall of the stone, and approximately 17 days after that she is deposed. So, 17 and 25 is 42, which is roughly a month and a half. And then we hear in Elida's point of view that it's been two months since she was raised. So it's roughly three and a half months since Rand drew Kalendor when we're in Elida's study. And as Gareth Bryn and his men are getting ready to leave, and who knows how long it is between her point of view and his, whether Jordan 
has it at exactly the same time. That's my guess, is that he has all of the POVs in his prologue and prologue part two taking place at basically the same time. Barum Hall, an old squadman of Bren's, rides up. He's been to New Bream to see his sister, and he's got news. It says, Barum straightened unconsciously as though making a report. Most important, I reckon they say Tyr has fallen. A yeoman took the stone itself, and the sword that cannot be touched has flat been touched. Somebody drew it, they say. An yeoman drew it? Bryn said incredulously. An Aiel would die before he touched a sword. He had seen it happen in the Aiel War, though it was said Kalendor was not really a sword at all, whatever that meant. They didn't say, my lord. I heard names. Ren somebody or other most often, but they was talking it like fact, not rumor, like everybody knew. And he continues, he talks about the deposition, that Swan's been stilled and executed, and Elida is now Omerlin, and it says, It all stank of trouble. Everyone knew the tower had secret alliances, strings tied to thrones and powerful lords and ladies. With a new Omerlin raised in this fashion, some would surely try to test whether the Aes Sedai still watched as closely, and once this fellow would tear quelled any opposition, not that there was likely to be much if he really did have the stone, he would move against Ilion or Kyrien. The question was how quickly could he move? Would forces be gathered against him or for him? He had to be the true dragon reborn, but the houses would go both ways, and the people, too. And if petty squabbles broke out because of the tower... Old fool, he muttered. Seeing Barum give a start, he added, not you, another old fool. None of this was his affair any longer, except to decide which way House Bryn went when the time came. Not that anyone would care, except to know whether or not to attack him. Bryn had never been a powerful house, or large. RJ shows us some really good stuff here. First... While Elida is for the moment getting her wish that word of a split in the tower has not spread, transfer of power through deposition and stilling does not make the Aes Sedai look strong or scream united front. Bryn immediately goes into Game of Houses mode and starts thinking like an advisor, and reading between the lines he's thinking, with such an unsmooth way for an Omerlin to shuffle off this mortal coil and another to be raised in her place, the Aes Sedai have to be looking to themselves, and while they're distracted, fuckery will abound. RJ is telling us, hey, this dude is still relevant. He's got a lot to offer. Jordan is painting a lonely guy who has no purpose here, and his talents are going to waste, and he is so fucking bored and dissatisfied that he feels compelled to go on a long and very potentially fruitless journey to know why someone who impressed him with her sincerity lied. And he feels vague just as Min does, which makes this gathering hard to discern and kind of awesome when we get there. But Swan acts as Taviran for a day. I always wondered how she could know that she saw Taviran, like how fucking common are they? And maybe it's just that you can be Taviran for a day. Maybe you do something that affects somebody just enough that you inspire them to do something with their life, or make a bold choice, or something where it just causes a bit of movement in the pattern. And maybe if Swan could see herself in the mirror, or if Nicola, who we meet in this book and who will see Taviran as well, could see Swan, she would see just a bit of shine to her for the moment that it took for Bryn to be pulled where the pattern needs him. Because here, Egwene's arc and destiny are being prepped and all of her support staff are getting pulled in the correct direction so that her two biggest advisors will be in place before she is summoned before the hall in Book 6. The point of view then switches to the High Lady Altima, who we knew shortly in Book 4. 
She is not important. We don't actually need to know her fate after Rand sent her to Kai Rien. You know, he's telling the High Lords what to do before he drives the sword into the stone. And because she poisons her husband to Dozian after he killed her lover, the High Lord Carlion, Rand's like, hey, High Lady Altima, you're going to go into Kai Rien with these other seven High Lords, Mylon, Torian, Heron, Simon, Gwaim, Aracon, and Maricon, and oversee the distribution of the grain, and I'm going to take your husband and move him into the High Lady Astanda's apartments, okay? And she faints in the big meeting hall in the heart of the stone. So we don't need to know anything that happens to her after, and we never hear from her again after Rand kills Robin, but she is an excellent vessel for information to travel in, and Jordan makes great use of her for that purpose. So she is sent to Kyrian to distribute the grain, but she flees to Camelon instead. She has used the last of her money to procure a carriage and a lackluster maid. It says, Altima compressed her lips in irritation. The girl did not even know how to take a mild reproof. She had been fooling herself. The girl would not do. She was too obviously untrained. But a lady had to have a maid, especially if she was to differentiate herself from the mass of refugees in Andor. She had seen men and women laboring in the sun, even begging in the streets, while wearing the remnants of Kyrian and nobles' garb. She thought she had recognized one or two. Perhaps she should take one of them in service. Who could know the duties of a lady's maid better than a lady? So great foreshadowing, both for our reintroduction, once Morghese leaves the palace and goes to the Queen's Blessing, to Brienne Taberwin, one of the aggressive cougars at Barthanas's party in Book 2, whose cornering of Rand sends him running to Tom for rescue, which leads to Galdry and Zagoons at Tom's hotel, which leads to Dina being killed, which leads to a king being assassinated. If a Kyrian cougar creeps on a Taviran, a civil war erupts. Anyway, this foreshadowing presages meeting Brienne again, and also Morghese's future fate as a lady's maid to Fahil. In Brynn's point of view, we saw Barham Hall's kind of muddled news, rumors that have morphed around in the telling. Altima brings first-person news of Rand, so she shows like a completely different aspect of how information works and the value that people place on it. It says, The royal palace did not display as much wealth as the Stone of Tyr, but Andor was still a wealthy land, perhaps even as wealthy as Tyr. An older lord would do nicely, malleable for a woman still young, perhaps a touch feeble and infirm, with vast estates. That would be a beginning while she found out exactly where the strings of power lay in Andor. A few words exchanged with Morghese some years ago were not much of an introduction, but she had that which a powerful queen must want and need, information. And the other great thing that Altima does, as far as her point of view, beyond providing information, is giving context by connecting the beginning of Book 4 to the beginning of Book 5, because our characters have all gone on adventures. They've been off to Tanchico, they've been home to the two rivers, they've been out in the desert, especially out in the desert. We've spent a lot of time dealing with Aiel fuckery, and now wetlander politics are relevant again. So having this call back to Tyr is incredibly useful, it brings it all back together. Morghese asks Altima about Rand, and it says, She kept strictly to the truth as she saw it, she could tell the truth as quickly as a lie when it was necessary. Morghese sipped her wine and listened. Altima might have thought her lounging indolently, except that her eyes showed she was taking in every word and storing it. You must understand, Altima finished, that I have only touched the surface. Rand Althor and what he has done in tears subjects for hours. You will have them, Morghese said, and in her mind Altima smiled. Success. Is it true, the queen went on, that he brought Aegil with him to the stone? Oh, yes. 
Great savages with their faces hidden half the time, and even the women ready to kill as soon as look. They followed him like dogs, terrorizing everyone, and took whatever they wanted from the stone. I had thought it must be the wildest rumor, Morgase reflected. There have been rumors this past year, but they've not come out of the waste in twenty years, not since the Aiel War. The world certainly does not need this Randall Thor bringing the Aiel down on us again. Her look sharpened again. You said followed. They have gone? Altima nodded. Just before I left here, and he went with them. With them, Morgase exclaimed. I feared he was in Kyrian, right? This... You have a guest, Morgase? I should have been told so I could greet her. A big man strode into the room, tall, his gold-embroidered red silk coat fitting massive shoulders and a deep chest. Altima did not need to see the radiant look on Morgase's face to name him as Lord Gabriel. The assurance with which he had interrupted the queen did that. He lifted a finger and the serving woman curtsied and left quickly. He did not ask Morgase's permission to dismiss her servants from her presence either. He was darkly handsome, incredibly so, with wings of white at his temples. Composing her face to commonplace, Altima put on a marginally welcoming smile, suitable for an elderly uncle with neither power, wealth, nor influence. He might be gorgeous, but even if he did not belong to Morgase, he was not a man she would try manipulating unless she absolutely had to. There was perhaps even more of an air of power about him than about Morgase. Gabriel stopped by Morgase and put his hand on her bare shoulder in a very familiar way. She clearly came close to resting her cheek on the back of his hand, but his eyes were on Altima. She was used to men looking at her, but those eyes made her shift uneasily. They were far too penetrating, saw far too much. You come from Tyr? The sound of his deep voice sent a tingle through her. Her skin, even her bones, felt as though she had been dipped in icy water, but oddly her momentary anxiety melted. It was Morgase who answered. Altima could not seem to find her tongue with him watching her. This is the High Lady Altima, Gabriel. She has been telling me all about the Dragon Reborn. She was in the Stone of Tear when it fell. Gabriel, there really were, I yield. The pressure of his hand cut her off. Irritation flashed across her face, but then it was gone, replaced by a smile beaming up at him. His eyes, still on Altima, sent that shiver through her again, and this time she gasped aloud. So much talking must have fatigued you, Morgase, he said without shifting his gaze. You do too much. Go to your bedchamber and sleep. Go now. I will wake you when you have rested enough. Morgase stood immediately, still smiling at him devotedly. Her eyes seemed slightly glazed. Yes, I am tired. I will take a nap now, Gable. She glided from the room, with never a glance at Altima, but Altima's attention was all on Gabriel. Her heart beat faster, her breath quickened. He was surely the handsomest man she had ever seen, the grandest, the strongest, the most powerful. Superlatives rolled through her mind like a flood. Gabriel paid no more attention to Morgase's leaving than she did. Taking the chair the queen had vacated, he leaned back with his boots stretched out in front of him. Tell me why you came to Camelin, Altima. Again the chill ran through her. The absolute truth, but keep it brief. You can give me details later if I want them. She did not hesitate. I tried to poison my husband and had to flee before Tadosian and that troll Astanda could kill me instead or worse. Randall Thor meant to let them do it as an example. Telling made her cringe. Not because it was a truth she had kept hidden so much as because she found she wanted to please him more than anything else in the world, and she feared that he might send her away. But he wanted the truth. I chose Camelin because I could not bear Ilian, and though Andor is a little better, Kyrian is in near ruins. In Camelin I can find a wealthy husband, or one who thinks he is my protector if need be, and use his power to— He stopped her with a wave of his hand, chuckling. A vicious little cat, though pretty. Perhaps pretty enough to keep with her teeth and claws drawn. Suddenly his face became more intent. 
Tell me what you know of Randall Thor, and especially his friends, if he has any, his companions, his allies. She told him, talking until her mouth and throat went dry and her voice cracked and rasped. She never raised her goblet until he told her to drink. Then she gulped the wine down and spoke on. She could please him. She could please him better than Morgase could think of. This sets up the trigger that will break Morgase free. Guardsman Lieutenant Talonvor comes to her in Chapter 19 with news of rebellion in the Two Rivers, and that starts it. But it's Lenny telling Morgase, when Morgase is like, you guys had a duty to tell me that Gabriel was fucked. Now it might be too late. Lenny doesn't realize it's about treason and Gabriel's plans to be Andor's first king. She thinks it's just about him being a fucking man-whore and a cheater, and she's like, why is it too late? Just bundle Altima and all of the others out of the palace... And Morgase realizes that not only is he trying to steal her throne, but he's fucking around on her. And that enrages her so much that it allows her to overcome the urge to return to her apartments. She keeps wanting to return to her apartments, but she's so fucking mad that there's Altima and six other women that he's fucking, and that everyone knows about it. It keeps short-circuiting the compulsion. This prologue, slash chapter one, ends with a tiny Morgase POV. She leaves Robin and Altima goes to her apartments, sends her servants away, and climbs into bed, still in her dress, and it says, Stop being stubborn, she chided herself, then wondered why. She had told Gabriel she was tired, and or had he told her? Impossible. She was the queen of Andor, and no man told her to do anything. Gareth. Now why had she thought of Gareth Bryn? He had certainly never told her to do anything. The captain general of the Queen's Guards obeyed the Queen, not the other way around. But he had been stubborn. Entirely capable of digging in his heels until she came around to his way. Why am I thinking of him? I wish he were here. That was ridiculous. She had sent him away for opposing her. About what no longer seemed quite clear, but that was not important. He had opposed her. She could remember the feelings she had had for him only dimly, as though he had been gone for years. Surely it had not been so long. Stop being stubborn. Her eyes closed and she fell immediately into sleep. A sleep troubled by restless dreams of running from something she could not see. So what does stop being stubborn mean? I don't know. Maybe she's trying to tell herself to give in to this desire to run away. Or maybe that's her internal voice trying to override her force of will and get her to submit entirely to the compulsion. I'm not certain. But what I do know is that if Morgase does not escape, then news does not come to Kai Rien, which means Rand doesn't go to Camelon in a fury to kill Robin. And, more significantly, which means Moraine doesn't know to tell Rand, hey, you should come down and see this thing at the docks, which means there's no calamity at the docks where Moraine tackles Lanfear through the doorframe. RJ sets this whole book up in this prologue and prologue part two slash chapter one, and in doing so, he touches on all of the points we need to know for the story going forward. It's artfully done and presages a really well-structured story that will contain massive character growth significant relationship development, terrible loss, and tons of change. And everything that's going to happen going forth is in some way going to touch back on what is set up here. They all link together in some way and intermix, and so it will be an amazing book to unpack. There's so much to do with it, and I'm excited to go forward because RJ's writing goes to a new level in the fires of heaven, and it makes my nerdy heart sing. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Podcast of the Dragon. I am so glad to be making episodes again. This was fun. 
And while I hate how much of my life work is eating up, it certainly forces me to make good use of the free time I do have. I was on fucking point with this one. As stated at the beginning of the show, my rough drafts will now be available on Patreon, including this one. If you want, you can see how much it's improved, what I added, and what I cut out. If you'd like to support the show and have access to that or to other fun content, there is a link in the show notes. There are other links to my Discord, to my email, etc., as well as a link to my YouTube, so you can go and subscribe, and to my Twitter handle, which is at PodOfTheDragon. There is also a link to Apple Podcasts. If you could review my show, I'd appreciate it, because it will help other people find me. And so will word of mouth. So if you know anyone who likes the Wheel of Time and might be interested in a different kind of podcast, please tell them about me. My music is by Kevin McLeod. My name is Morgan. And Gareth Grimm probably wouldn't have been so bored and dissatisfied with his rural life if the stupid white folks hadn't blocked the export of Good Two Rivers Leaf. God, they suck. Dame Pornhall probably doesn't even smoke it. Brandy's fine, but only dark friends smoke Two Rivers Tobacco. Fucking assholes.